When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout. I'm 65 years old, a diabetic, AFib heart, heart disease, everything. Now, did you shorten my life now? I want to retire and enjoy it. How are we going to enjoy it? You, you burned me. With people in East Palestine, Ohio, angry and afraid after the toxic train derailment, Donald Trump offers them Trump brand water and cultural grievance. Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who toured the site today, called on the former president to support reversing the safety deregulations put in place by his administration. Secretary Buttigieg will join me in just a moment. Also tonight, more evidence that the right knew it was all a big lie as we learned that Arizona's former Republican attorney general buried a report refuting election fraud claims. And Garrison Hayes is here. You know him from his TikTok stories, TikTok series, Forgotten Black History. And tonight he is bringing us some kick-ass black history. But we begin the readout tonight with East Palestine, Ohio, where we heard directly from federal officials today about what caused the toxic train derailment there three weeks ago. The chair of the National Transportation Safety Board did not hold back. But I can tell you this much, this was 100% preventable. We call things accidents, there is no accident. The NTSB's report pointed to an overheating wheel bearing as a reason for the Norfolk Southern Railway derailment, noting that the crew received an alert and tried to stop the train before it jumped off the tracks. The report was released as Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg was on the ground in East Palestine today, getting a firsthand look at the damage. And as residents from the community continue to demand answers, at a town hall last night, lifelong residents unloaded on Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and the CEO of Norfolk Southern. I just want to feel safe in my town again, and I I don't feel safe right now. Until the cleanup is done, you'll stay with us? Within the one mile? Yes. Yes, I've been there. I've been there three times for a few hours. Have you, will you there. stay overnight for a period of time? Yeah. The people of East Palestine are just being treated like dummies. We're not dummies. We're smart people. I'm angry. I'm angry about this. I've lived in East Palestine for 65 years now. That's my home. That palpable anger is justifiable. And it followed a bizarre moment yesterday when former President Donald Trump visited East Palestine along with the man whose election he supported, Ohio Republican Senator J.D. Vance. Trump boasted about the help he was bringing to the community, and it was about as weird as you might expect. We're bringing thousands of bottles of water, Trump water, actually, most of it. Uh, Some of it we had to go to a much lesser quality water. You want to get those Trump bottles, I think, more than anybody else. 
Trump followed that bit of theater with a pit stop turned campaign photo op at a local McDonald's, of course, where he handed out MAGA hats, bragged about his in-depth knowledge of the menu and denied that his administration had anything to do with regulatory changes that contributed to the disaster. And many residents in a county that voted overwhelmingly for Trump in the last two elections were elated. But it was him. It was Donald Trump and his administration who gave the rail industry and Norfolk Southern exactly what they wanted. Fewer and looser rules around rail safety. Trump conveniently forgot to tell his most loyal supporters how Norfolk Southern lobbied heavily for laxer safety rules and how receptive the regulators in the Trump administration were to their arguments on rolling back the rules. There's also the litany of Obama-era regulations to advance safety that Trump's administration rescinded and that the Biden administration has or is trying to reinstate. Look, Donald Trump has clearly made a cynical calculation that the grift of giving residents of a poisoned town decade-old Trump water and signing some hats will be enough for people who have endured three weeks of fear and illness and inability to drink the water coming out of their own taps or, or take a shower without worrying that it'll make them sick, that that will be enough to make them vote for him again and to ignore his role in their suffering. And you know what? Maybe that cynical hope will be borne out by reality. Maybe people in East Palestine, Ohio, would vote for him again. I mean, our politics are certainly that polarized, right? Still today, Secretary Buttigieg was asked what the former president could do to actually help. One thing he could do is uh, uh, express support for reversing the deregulation uh, that uh, happened on his watch. I heard him say he had nothing to do with it, even though it was in his administration. Uh, so if he had nothing to do with it, and uh, they did it in his administration against his will, uh, maybe he could come out and say that, uh, uh, that uh, he supports us moving in a different direction. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg joins me now. And, you know, the, the, the sort of theatrics of Donald Trump being in Palestine were odd. Uh, but this is a community that voted overwhelmingly for him. The county that uh, Palestine is in voted 71-29 for Donald Trump. And I just want you to sort of reflect on the irony. In 2016, it was 68-26. This is a Trump county. What do you make of the fact that he went there, despite the fact that the regulations that he rolled back were partly responsible for this tragedy? I mean, it was definitely an ironic thing to do. Uh, you know, you, you take down regulations, you, you water down regulations, you weaken uh, the power of the administration to deal with freight railroad companies, and then you show up wanting to be uh, a, a great friend of the people who have been impacted by a rail disaster. Uh, you know, this is somebody who, as far as I know, uh, never went to a derailment site uh, when one of those happened on his watch, and there were thousands, uh, even ones with fatalities. Never even sent his transportation secretary to go. Uh, now that it's campaign season, uh, I guess things are different. Uh, we were there to work. We were there to get things done. And uh, I'm really glad I had the opportunity to be there because I got to tell you, the people I spent time with in East Palestine, we didn't talk politics. Um, I'm, I'm sure most of them are on the other side politically, but that didn't come up. What, what came up was how concerned they are for their community. Uh, I spent time with the mayor, spent time with uh, uh, folks in local government who were uh, trying to do everything from uh, make sure people have access to good information about health to uh, uh, making sure people have access to good information about water, keeping that uh, uh, that waterworks and, and wastewater operation going. And, uh, you know, you 
you could sense a level of frustration with the political circus that has descended on their town after they've already been through so much, so much fear, so much disruption, uh, and none of it their fault. Uh, none of it uh, because of anything that they did wrong, other than than just the consequence of uh, of, of living where they live, and, and they deserve to be safe, uh, and they deserve to know they're going to be taken care of. By the way, Part of what is going to make sure they're taken care of is uh, the work of the EPA. Uh, the EPA administrator has been there twice. The EPA is uh, the, the agency that's been able to make sure that Norfolk Southern is paying for the remediation. Uh, the EPA came under uh, a lot of attack, as you know, under the last administration. But it's, a, it's another agency alongside our Department of Transportation uh, and all of the other agencies that are on the ground. I met dozens of folks on the federal side, uh, so many folks from the state uh, uh, so many uh, local officials doing everything in their power to help this community. And, mm-hmm. you know, what, what, what I saw was public servants uh, from all levels of government, including levels of government that have been vilified, doing everything they can to make these residents better off and residents mm-hmm. who deserve uh, to make sure, even when the circus goes, that mm-hmm. uh, uh, that they're going to be taken care of. Let, let, let me ask you, because, you know, you said you mentioned political silly season, and it is. I mean, it's a campaign season. Um, one of the people who've taken a lot of the blame and taken a lot of the brick bets is you. Uh, Senator Marco Rubio has said you should resign. Um, there's been a lot of criticism over the time it took to 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 arrive for you to personally go for the president to go um, and they're even using the president's trip to Ukraine as a wedge what do you have to say to Senator Rubio who is blaming you and saying you should resign as a result of what happened in East Palestine well the strange thing about hearing that from Senator Rubio was that the last time I had gotten a communication from him about uh, railroad regulation was when he had signed a letter asking us to weaken our inspection uh, practices so uh, you know I th- I, but but let me say this uh, I mean if anybody uh, regardless of what they've done in the past is serious about the future uh, Republican Democrat independent if anybody has found religion on the subject of making sure that we actually regulate these corporations and hold them accountable then I am calling them in and inviting them to the table yeah. we did a lot of work from day one doing things like restoring uh, and enhancing safety audits which were pulled back under the last administration uh, resuming work on a rule that will require to you, ha- you to have at least two people which is kind common sense uh, on these long trains, at least two. That's a rule that was frozen under the last administration we resumed. But we could do so much more, especially if Congress were there to help. And I'll give you uh, one example of something I would love for Senator Rubio and any other member uh, of, of Congress who cares about this issue to sign on to, which is to raise the legal cap on the fines that my department is allowed to assess when there is a violation. Right now, even if there's a hazardous material violation that results in somebody getting killed, the most that we can uh, we can assess against a company is about a mm-hmm. quarter of a million dollars, which you can imagine for a multi-billion dollar corporation like Norfolk Southern or the other freight railroads, that's a drop in the bucket to them. That's an easy, uh, natural, common sense thing that Congress could do tomorrow uh, is uh, is raise that cap and give right. us more uh, tools to work with to hold these railroads accountable. And I, and I will note that the governor, uh, Mike DeWine, did say that uh, President Biden called him immediately and that he initially did not think that they needed any additional 
assistance, which is um, was what, what he literally said. Uh, I don't have time to play that sound because I want to play another one for you. Because th- there's a thing where this is happening in a very red, red community. But this is not uncommon, right? This is these kinds of man-made disasters have happened. We saw it in Flint. We've seen it in Jackson. You know, we've seen them all. And normally the thing that these communities have in common is that they're not rich, <laughs> that they're communities that are not wealthy. And so the train lines go through their communities. Let me just play you what Tucker Carlson had to say, because this the reason Trump went there is he has this you're forgotten meme that he wants to keep going with. Here's Tucker Carlson adding to that and throwing in the aspect of race. East Palestine is overwhelmingly white and it's politically conservative. More than 70 percent of the voters in the surrounding county supported Donald Trump in the last election. That shouldn't be relevant, but as you're about to hear, it very much is. Imagine if this had happened in, well, the favored cities of Philadelphia and Detroit. This affected the rich or the favored poor. It would be the lead of every news channel in the world. But it happened to the poor benighted town of East Palestine, Ohio, whose people are forgotten and in the view of the people who lead this country, forgettable. By the way, I will note that it was it's been the lead on this show multiple times, including tonight, which is why you're here in our A block. But and Detroit is like right near Flint. But anyway, I'm going to allow you to respond because this is a meme that keeps people in places like Palestine voting for people like Donald Trump, who then deregulate the train lines that poison them. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I don't know where uh, Tucker Carlson was when they were trying to dismantle the EPA, which is now uh, maybe the main thing standing between the people of East Palestine and ecological disaster. Uh, Look, uh, uh, they they they're always ready to take it back to race. But the reality is that uh, we're going to serve everybody. That's how this administration works. Uh, We're not out there to bring resentment. We're out there to bring results. And uh, what our focus was today and our focus, by the way, from the first hours when we had uh, our Department of Transportation personnel on the ground uh, from those very first hours in this response all the way through today and well into the future for as long as it takes focus is to make sure that people get the information they need, the support that they need, and the accountability that is needed for corporations like Norfolk Southern to clean up this mess. There, there is a, a long pattern of, uh, you know, voices like, uh, like that in, in the, uh, ideological media, let's call it that, uh, trying to pit people against each other only to turn around and support policies that are especially hard on uh, working class and low income people of every race. Uh, because one thing, you know how a broken clock is, is right at least twice, twice a day. One thing he's exactly right about is that uh, environmental disasters uh, tend to happen more frequently and more painfully to lower income communities. We call that environmental justice. And yet, if I use those words, I'm sure he'll be the first one to say that we're, uh, we're too woke, uh, to be paying attention to, uh, to the bread and butter of our jobs. Part of the bread, or but- bread and butter of our job is to keep people safe from being harmed or killed, which is what regulation, sometimes an unpopular word, is all about. It's what enforcement is all about. It's what accountability is all about. We restored some of that regulation and enforcement and accountability that was stripped away when we got here. I know that's going on on the EPA side. That's definitely going on with us on the Department of Transportation side. And we will continue that as long as we have uh, this, this honor of serving, because what we came here to do is to protect every American. And I mean every American who comes Uh, into contact with our transportation system. 
uh, well, I want to thank you, um, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Thank you. And I want to note to our audience that I should have mentioned Tucker Carlson, the person who we now know, per the Dominion lawsuit, lies to his audience when he's behind the scenes saying what he really believes. I should have noted that before playing a clip of him. All right, thank you. Up next on the readout, um, well, it was all a lie. <laughs> we now know that the former attorney general of Arizona suppressed a report showing his office found no evidence of election fraud. Well, surprise, surprise. Well, that story and more. And the readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Last week, we learned that Fox News would rather lie to their viewers than tell them the truth and risk people turning the channel. That truth was that the, the truth, that truth was that the 2020 election, according to Trump's own administration, was one of the most secure elections in American history. And that Donald Trump lost to Joe Biden by more than 7 million votes. Yesterday, thanks to the newly elected Democratic Attorney General of Arizona, Chris Mays, we learned that her predecessor, Mark Burnovich, knew months ago that there was virtually zero fraud. But he withheld that evidence from the public. Nearly a year after the election, Burnovich launched an investigation that lasted 10,000 hours with more than 400 claims investigated. Separate investigations tasked with looking into those claims produced a report in March of last year and stated in black and white, that virtually all claims of error and malfeasance, malfeasance were unfounded. A month later, Brnovich issued an interim report that ignored those findings and claimed serious vulnerabilities. He left out edits from his own investigators, refuting his assertions. His decision to lie to the public was likely motivated by the fact that he was running in a MAGA-filled primary for Arizona's Senate seat. His decision helped make Arizona ground zero of election denialism to this day. This is just a taste of what Republican voters in Arizona told Frank Luntz during a focus group just last week. Why are we using the same system that they used in Venezuela? If any of these systems are Democrat-owned, how can we trust the checks and balance of, of, of these votes? It doesn't matter where the vote comes from, whether it's a Dominion voting machine or a mail-in ballot. How can we trust that if George Soros owns over 40 percent of these machines? We just don't trust. And because of that trust, Mm -hmm. we don't believe the truth that's being told to us. Nothing they just said is true. But this, this is the more dangerous, by the way, consequence of lying to people. Take a look.
You see, lies don't exist in a vacuum. They fuel suspicion that leads to death, destruction, and the most serious threat to American democracy in modern history. Very few Republican politicians or Fox pundits are held accountable for those lies. Those who assaulted the Capitol are being held accountable. Roughly a thousand of them who were convinced to believe the big lie have been prosecuted, including Enrique Tarrio, the leader of the right-wing militia group, the Proud Boys. Tarrio is charged with having directed, mobilized, and led a crowd of 200 supporters onto the Capitol grounds. On Wednesday, Jeremy Bertino, the only member of that group to plead guilty to seditious conspiracy, testified that the members of the Proud Boys believed that they had to take the reins and lead an all-out revolution to keep Trump in office. In discussing how they would accomplish that, Bertino explained that they needed to get Pelosi because she was the talking head of the opposition and they needed to remove her from power. Bertino added, quote, We were always talking about being the tip of the spear. And that was just another example of us leading the way and leading by example. I'm joined now by Stuart Stevens, senior advisor to the Lincoln Project and chief strategist for Mitt Romney's 2012 campaign. And Stuart, I mean, we've been down this road before, but the people on in the Republican base were receiving the same lie from so many different sources. It was their elected officials, like this official in Arizona, who's their top law enforcement guy. He's supposed to be telling them the truth, but he was lying to them to help himself win, win a primary, which he lost. And now let's look at what they were hearing, likely, from their favorite news channel, Fox News. As we await today's Electoral College decision, an Intel source telling me that President Trump did, in fact, win the election. Interesting stories about dead people voting. Wow, amazing. Uh, what free and fair elections we all have confidence in. I saw that interview with Sidney Powell and Maria uh, on Sunday. She sounded convincing. We need to find out exactly what happened in this election. Uh, you know, and I'm not, no, not giving any excuses to the people who stormed the Capitol, but every source of information available to them was telling the same lie. It's not shocking at all that they believed that they needed to do something, I guess, to keep Trump in office forever. You know, um, I, I don't think we talk enough about the uh, blame that is within what passes for the establishment of the Republican Party. Every United States senator who's Republican knew within 48 hours, without a doubt, that Donald Trump had lost that election. All they had to do was get their comm shot to put out a statement congratulating the president-elect of the country that they live in. They're serving in the United States senator in Congress. I mean, on the level of a sacrifice for democracy compared to, say, the greatest generation, which is what they inherited, it's a pretty low bar. But they went along with it. And I, I really think that was a, a check. I mean, in our system, parties should be a circuit breaker to stop craziness. And the greatest failure of the Republican Party in this whole Trump era has been not to be that circuit breaker. And the reason they're not doing it is because they want power. And they care more about power than they care about the country. And that continues. I think about Arizona, which really became ground zero. I mean, they hired these strange organizations to come and audit these wild. I mean, 
But they were being told, if you lived in Arizona, you're a Republican, you are hearing from the government. You're, the Republican government is saying, yeah, there's something wrong with this election. And then you turn on Fox News and they're saying this election was stolen. Trump is saying it was stolen. Everyone that you in your bubble trust is saying this was a fraud of, you know, historic proportions. Now, you tell some Democrats that, let's just be clear, they ain't storming the Capitol. Okay. But Republicans are different. And this is what a lot of them did. Do you think that there should be more subpoenas of people like this supposed, you know, government official in Arizona in these trials? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. I mean, the guy was using government money to do an investigation and then he covered up the investigation results because he didn't like it and he thought it might help him in a primary. Um, I mean, I'd make a good case for that being misuse of government funds for sure. Um, look, I think what has been difficult to grasp is how deep this goes in the Republican Party. I mean, it's like January 6th. I mean, it was always clear to a lot of us who worked in the party, but it's now it's been sort of explicated that this was something that involved every layer of the Republican Party, from the White House to the RNC to the Attorney General's Association, the people who were supposed to be you know, the upholders of the law, to big donors, um, to senators and their staff. And where are we today? I mean, yeah. majority of the Republican Party does not believe that Joe Biden is a legally elected yeah. president. It, you, and you, and I, mean, I think the consequences of that are just profound. I mean, Jack Smith is now a subpoena. Jared and Ivanka, the family knew it was a lie. They went along with it. Jared got a great uh, little deal of money uh, out of the Saudis out of it. So then what do you make of the fact that the reaction of the current Speaker of the House, nominal Speaker, is to then hand over 41,000 hours of raw footage to the same guy who is being sued for lying outright to his viewers, Tucker Carlson, of all our security footage from the Capitol from January 6th. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I suppose Kevin McCarthy can call himself an American by virtue of birth and he carries an American passport, but he hadn't acted like an American in a long time. Um, this is just anti-American activity. It is against democracy. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating. This is occurring on the year of, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the message that Putin and the Soviet Union delivered since the 1920s with Bolsheviks was that there was not American democracy, that our system was flawed. They said in Soviet and Russian propaganda exactly what they were saying in the focus groups. And we know Russia supported Trump. Yeah. And now we have the consequences of this. I mean, it is extraordinary as someone who worked in that party. And the one thing that we believed in was that we were anti-Soviet Union, anti-Russian. Yeah. And now they've adopted their talking points. Yeah. And I, I think I think this is just beginning. Yeah. I think Including this next is, is going to be ex incredibly uh, difficult. Yeah. I mean, including the idea of breaking up America, the Marjorie Green. I mean, that's also something that the, <laughs> that the Kremlin wants. And I will just tell the audience that uh, Kevin McCarthy's excuse for doing what he did. He said, well, because I promised I promised I'd give it to him. So I'm giving it to him. Extraordinary. Yeah, he also took uh, an office that was a promise that he violated yeah. by doing that. There you go. There you go. Stuart Stevens. Thank you, sir. Really appreciate you. Uh, still ahead. The Fulton County Grand Jury four person is coming under fire for talking about the investigation publicly and talking and talking and talking. Could her media tour put future indictments at risk? We'll ask an expert to talk me down and maybe you too after this. Alpha one nighter commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs, streaming, game console, consoling, smart thermostat, 
Set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. The Georgia grand jury that investigated potential interference in the 2020 election by Donald Trump and his allies recommended indictments for more than a dozen people in its final report to Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. And we know this because the jury foreperson, Emily Coors, went on a media tour to describe or rather telegraph her experience on the grand jury, adding some color on what is to come. So we're talking about more than a dozen people. I would say that, yes. Okay. Are these recognizable names, names that people would know? There are certainly names that you would recognize. We definitely heard a lot about former President Trump, and we definitely discussed him a lot in the room. And I will say that uh, when this list comes out, you wouldn't, there are no major plot twists waiting for you. Okay, but, but, but then things got weird. My coolest moment was shaking Rudy Giuliani's hand. That was really cool for me. I, I made a point of, of stopping them and being like, wait, before we, before we go back to this, can I shake your hand? Because it's an honor to meet the guy. Senator Lindsey Graham, what was his demeanor like? when he Fantastic. Came to mm. He was personable. I really liked him. I really liked talking to him. I kind of wanted to subpoena the former president because I got to swear everybody in. And so I thought it'd be really cool to get 60 seconds with President Trump of me looking at him and being like, do you solemnly swear? And me getting to swear him in, I just, I kind of just thought that would be an awesome moment. Yeah, well, the appearances have elicited quite the response, to say the least. But importantly, what, if anything, does it actually mean for the case? Joining me now to explain what we just saw is Charles Coleman Jr., civil rights attorney, former prosecutor, MSNBC legal analyst, and host of the Charles Coleman podcast. Uh, you have a lot to do, but you need to do one more thing, which is please explain to me um, whether that is going to hurt the case. Because I think, so Lisa Rubin, our legal analyst, she wrote, um, you know, she might be irritated by any grand juror talking public now where I heard I would be still Emily Corr's pursuit of her 15 minutes is not likely to preclude anyone indicted or convicted from serving their term of years. That was her take. What is yours? I agree with Lisa. She's extremely bright and usually on point, And this is no exception. I will say that as a former prosecutor, though, it makes me very, very nervous. Yeah. And it makes me nervous because while the rules do allow for her to do this and sort of go on this clout chasing tour of 15 minutes of fame, Donald Trump has been the proverbial gingerbread man. We haven't been able to sort of wrap our minds around the fact that we need to indict him and hold him accountable. This has been, from my perspective, one of the strongest cases against him thus far. And to see it jeopardized in any way, shape or form because of a four person who wanted to get in front of a camera and giddily talk about shaking Rudy Giuliani's hand. 
really makes me nervous. Yeah, I mean, th- th- this. so just to be to put it in per- some perspective, she's done interviews with the New York Times, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the Associated Press, CNN, and of course our own and uh, Blaine Alexander from NBC. I mean, she's been on a tour. I, I sat on a grand jury. I didn't think you were allowed to talk at all. How is it okay to do a media tour? I didn't think you could do that. Well, every state, every jurisdiction has different rules. And in this case, this was permitted. And yeah. the judge gave them specific instructions in terms of what it was that they could talk about and what it was that they could say. I suspect that some of what we may see visually in terms of her appearing to be coy or giddy is actually her thinking about the rules that the judge laid out or right. what it is that she can say yeah. and not say without running afoul of what they were instructed with. Yeah. At the same time, you know, because we've been so close in so many different respects, yeah. and like I said, this is probably one of the most direct, other than the Mar-a-Lago document case, yeah. routes to a potential indictment and prosecution, I just don't like the idea of it being risked. How- how could a defense attorney potentially use use this if they wanted to use it? I would immediately go for the influence that it could potentially create over either A, the investigation to say that this may have somehow unduly pressured Fonnie Willis into moving forward in a particular way, right. or B, I would make it a big issue around potential jury selection to say that this level of media exposure could have potentially tainted a jury pool. Yeah. I would be moving for just a number of different things to challenge the validity and integrity of the investigation based off of what we see being leaked here. Now, I don't know how much of a winning argument that is, Yeah. but if I was to do anything with it, that's where I would go. So, so this aside, it, it feels to me like if I were one of the fake jurors, I would be very worried about my future. If I was Mark Meadows, even based on what she said, I would be worried about my future and be really making sure that my lawyer was paid up, right? Is there anyone else you feel is in more jeopardy after, based on what you heard her say? Not in particular. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, she was still very elusive in her comments, which is why it's kind of sort of more bizarre than anything else. But I think that because of his standing, and you and I have talked about this before, I'm really concerned if I'm Mark Meadows. I'm concerned on a number of different levels. If I'm Rudy Giuliani, I've been concerned. So that's not necessarily Well, at least you know you have a new friend. Right. Well, (laughs) you know, my handshake is worth something, right? And then finally, Senator Lindsey Graham can never be too far away from being concerned because of who he is, where he sits, and the implications that it could have if he were more entangled in the situation than he already is. Yeah, the the whole thing is so strange, but I think that is... We share the same concern. Donald Trump has been a sort of Teflon Don. And it's not clear why it is that he seems to escape accountability. He's been fined. He has faced fines, including uh, Bragg in New York has has gotten him fined. He's faced fines in New York. But it does seem like criminal accountability is, in your view, is it because he's wealthy? Because that is the way wealthy people roll. Or is it because he was president? I think it's a combination. I think you're talking about privilege. I think you're talking about race. Uh, He's a rich white guy. There you go. There you go. I mean, I think you're talking about a number of different things. And I also think that, you know, he has also had the protection of people he's been associated with. Yeah. There have been a lot of people, some of whom have chosen to go to jail. Yeah. Rather than to speak up and talk about what they know where he is concerned. And so that sort of combination has coalesced in this shield of protection, which it appears as though either Jack Smith, Fonnie Willis or both will be able to potentially penetrate. Yeah. But not if people keep talking and telling what was going on in secret hearings. It would just be nice to just stop talking and let it happen. Charles Coleman Jr., thank you very much. Appreciate you. And up next, a video journalist for Mother Jones presents his take on Black History Month, showcasing some of the more badass figures who have helped advance the causes of freedom and equality. Garrison Hayes joins me next. Stay with us. 
bet you didn't know that Abraham Galloway was about that life. Described as a mix between Malcolm X and James Bond, this man fled to Canada to escape slavery but came back looking for revenge. Legend has it that he once said, a slave will not be free without much killing. And bro meant every word. When he heard that Haitian revolutionaries were planning to attack the American South to help free black people, he hopped on the first boat to Haiti he could find. Galloway really rode for the culture. He never learned to read or write, but he was written about all over the country. When the Union Army recruited him to be a spy, he held a Union recruiter at gunpoint until his demands were met. You may be wondering what those demands were. The promise of equal pay for new black recruits, school for black children, and jobs for black women. Yeah, that's that king behavior. Well, it is the final week of Black History Month, and while it is still legal in the state of Florida, tonight we want to do something a little bit different, and not just in the fashion sense. Boop. Well, instead of talking about the painful history that encompasses so much of the history of Africans in America, we wanted to highlight some of the kick-ass black history, like the story that we just played. And to do that, we have Garrison Hayes, TikTok's unofficial history professor, who uses his platform to talk about black history and tell the badass stories that you probably have not heard before. And Garrison Hayes joins me now. He is now creator in residence at Mother Jones and one of my favorite follows on TikTok. Hey, Garrison, thank you for being here. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Tell us more of this story. I love this story of Abraham Galloway. Tell us a little bit more about him. So Abraham Galloway is born in 1930 in North Carolina, and he escapes slavery, goes to Canada. And the thing about Abraham Galloway that I love so much is that he is just really committed to the liberation of his people. As soon as he hears that Haitian revolutionaries are interested in attacking the South in order to free black people there, um, he hops on the first boat he can to get to, to get to Haiti. Um, he ends up back in the in, in the United States. Um, and, and not long after that, the United States is uh, the Union Army recruits him because he knows how to navigate the South. They need his expertise. And as I said in the video, he really leverages that moment to advocate for black children, for black women, for other black men. Um, he's this incredibly liberatory, liberating figure um, who goes after the Civil War uh, to continue to push for change um, in America. I mean, he is he's he's a signer. He, he's he helps to ratify the 14th and the 15th Amendments. This guy is absolutely incredible. And it's always amazing to me. You know, I told his story online and how many people are saying I've never heard of this person before. Yeah. It's always incredible to me because he's so amazing. Well, you know, it's so funny. I consider myself to be, well, first of all, I'm a super nerd and I consider myself to be pretty knowledgeable about history and black history. I had never heard of him until I saw it on your TikTok. So you're right. This is somebody that is not taught in schools. Talk about some of your other favorite characters in, in black history. Charles Hamilton Houston, I know, is one of the other ones that you've done a piece on. Talk about him a little bit. Yeah, I really love Charles Hamilton Houston. Uh, he's really the architect of the legal uh, side of the civil rights movement. You know, he recognized that white liberals did not have the guts to pass pro-black legislation. And so he devised a plan to really attack it from the legal side, to take cases to, you know, to every level of the judiciary to get them to get things like overturned. Jim return. And so he finds the perfect case in Missouri where a black man had applied to to be uh, admitted to Missouri's law school. And they, of course, because of the color of his skin, don't let him in. And so they sue. 
and say, well, if 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 Missouri doesn't have uh, uh, an equal, a separate but equal law school for black people, then violating the Constitution. And of course, they won. And that was kind of the, the the starting point of what would eventually lead to the end of segregation. Thinking about Brown versus Board of Education, we would not have gotten there without uh, Mr. Mr. Hamilton Houston's uh, efforts and his brilliant mind. You know, what I love about your TikTok and what you do for history is that you're filling in the blanks on some of the ways that we got to things like Brown v. Board, which people think these things just happen out of nowhere, but they happen because of a lot of activism, things that build toward things like Brown. Uh, But you also do stories. I mean, I love the stories of like the military heroes, the pilots, like the things that we don't hear about because... I feel like we are kind of trained to believe that black history began with slavery and ended with Dr. King saying just that one sentence. But there's so much more to it. There's another great story that you do um, a history on Althea Gibson. We got to get a woman in there. Talk a little bit about a little bit about Althea Gibson. So Althea Gibson is one of my favorite specific about black resilience and amazing community. So she's born in the segregated South on a cotton farm to parents who are sharecroppers. So she's coming of the direct legacy and evolution of slavery, right? But 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 her family, just like millions of other African-Americans said, the South ain't it. We don't want to be here anymore. So they picked up and they moved to New York uh, during what's called the Great Migration. And when, when they get there, Althea is still really struggling. She's skipping school. She's not doing well in her classes. And that's where community part comes into focus uh, first collect an offering they they pull their money and they pay for her to get tennis lessons and break many incredible barriers a professional athlete she wins she wins roland garris in, in france she wins wimbledon in front of the queen i mean she is this incredible figure here. Truly, we wouldn't have the Serena Williams, yeah. the, the Venus Williams, uh, the Coco Golf. We wouldn't have an Althea Gibson first. What kind of a reaction do you get from TikTok? Is it more like me going, wait a minute, I didn't know that story? Or, you know, do, do you get some of the pushback that we're seeing uh, against learning black history in schools? Like, what is the general reaction that you get to your your posts? You know, it's it's. It's really interesting. So, so I get a mixed bag. I, I think the thing that encourages me the most is that I often, you know, I just got a comment literally 20 minutes ago on one of my videos where someone said, Hey, I never knew about, about this before. I'm going to put them up, up wall in my classroom. Right. So there's so many people who are finding out this history in action. And so it's really great to see the impact that it's having in the real world. It's not just clicks and scrolls and hearts and comments. But we're having a real life impact. Uh, of course, I get the haters as well. Like that's yeah. just naturally going to be a part of it. Um, yep. But the, the the positive outweighs the negative, of course. I am waiting for you yourself to be banned in the state of Florida, because I'm sure Ron DeSantis is not enjoying anything that you're doing. <laughs> I bet he doesn't follow you on TikTok or he follows you for all the wrong reasons to hate on you. But Garrison Hayes, we love you. Thank you so much. This is the kick ass black history. We need it today. Thank you. And up next, marking one year since Vladimir Putin launched his brutal invasion of Ukraine and all the death, destruction and displacement that it has caused. We will be right back. Almost exactly one year ago today, to the hour, Russia, entirely unprovoked, invaded the sovereign nation of Ukraine. This is an NBC News special report. 
Here's Tom Yamas. And good evening. We are coming on the air with breaking news. Ukrainian officials telling NBC News their country is under attack. Our team spread throughout Ukraine, hearing large blasts and explosions all across the country. Our team also reporting Russian troops landing in parts of Ukraine as the sun is rising there. Ukraine and its 44 million citizens are waking up to their country now being invaded. Russian forces are spread along nearly every border. Russian President Vladimir Putin going on television early this morning, announcing the attack and telling Ukrainian forces to lay down their arms. Horrifying trauma for the country followed, with cities annihilated and atrocious war crimes directly targeting civilians, including when Russia bombed a Mariupol art school sheltering civilians that was sheltering civilians, the AP concluding that 600 people were killed there. A report released by the United Nations this week concludes that over the past year, more than 8,000 civilians were killed and more than 13,000 injured, with 18 million in dire need of humanitarian assistance and 14 million displaced from their homes, some forcibly sent to Russia. And they stress that these numbers are just a tip of the iceberg. But despite all of this, Ukrainians' resolve has remained strong. At the beginning of the war, experts were convinced Kyiv would fall in days or even hours, but it didn't. Instead of fleeing to safety like others might have done, President Volodymyr Zelensky decided to stay and lead during his country's time of need. Russian troops, some not even knowing why they were there and why they were told to fight, became increasingly demoralized. Despite his inability to win so far, Putin is not backing down, delivering a provocative speech earlier this week and continuing to indiscriminately shell the country. But the Ukrainian people continue to fight. And that's tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.